Hey, everybody. We good? Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City. Uh, very thankful to have you worshiping with us this Sunday morning uh, as we gather every single Sunday. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to hop into our message today. Lord, thank you that as we gather on Sunday today, as we come to study your word, Lord, study this, this word that has been read by Christians for centuries, um, as people just like us, God, people who want to follow you, who want to love you, who want to be like your son, um, have gathered together or have opened their own Bibles and read this passage, Lord, um, and you've used it, um, as you do every, every scripture passage, Lord, to, um, to, to help people to know what it looks like to follow you well, Lord. I pray that as we do the same this morning, um, that you would, you would do that for us, Lord. Help us to know what it means for us to, to be people who love you, who follow after you, um, and who may be people who, who, who resonate the love of your son Jesus out to the world around us. We pray all this in his name. Amen. All right, so... Brett Ripley, who is one of our elders, <laughs> Brett's laughing because he knows what I'm going to talk about here. Um, I, he's, he's a burger aficionado. If you know Brett well enough, you know that burgers um, is, is his jam. It's one of his many jams. Brett has a lot of jams, but burgers are one of his main jams. And I really do think, you know, it, it, the Twin Cities, like I, I struggle, you know, a lot of different cities are known for like different food that they're really good at. I do think the Twin Cities, like you could argue, burgers are what we do best in the Twin Cities. We're, we're very good at it. Um, and so Brett and his brother have actually started a burger rating system where they have gone to a bunch of restaurants in the Twin Cities and they have tried the burgers and they've kind of rated them all. Now, I want you to guess. So you can go ahead and yell out, what do you think is their top burger on the list, after kind of all this painstaking, extensive work, what do you think the best burger in the Twin Cities, according to the Ripley Brothers, is? It's a lot of, lot of good guesses. All of these are very high on the list, I can assure you. But number one, with a 9.15 out of 10 on the burger rating scale, is the Parlor Burger. The Parlor Burger. Okay, and, and I'm quoting here from, from the list. A successful parlor burger is perhaps the best meat blend you will ever have on a cheeseburger. Now, I actually haven't tried this yet. I go, Brett and I, get to, we get together somewhat regularly. We try different uh, spots. We haven't been able to make the parlor work, so I really need uh, to get out there and do that. Um, but I would highly encourage you to check out the burger list. You can get it from Brett. He's sitting right over there. I'm sure he'd love to, to share the burger list with you. I know, other, I know a lot of people who actually do use this um, and actually ha have kind of tried to use it to find good, good spots to go try different burgers and stuff. Um, now, uh, the reason I bring this up today is because is knowledge and food are two of the, uh, the topics in the passage in 1 Corinthians that we're going to be studying today. Now, we're, we're in a series right now. It's called Becoming Who We Are. And, and it's, it's a study of the, of the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And um, it, it's about really holy identity, what it looks like for us to be people who model and resonate out and take seriously the holiness of people who follow after Jesus, who have been made holy through Jesus. 
And we just are going through this letter and, and seeing what it looks like for us in our own context uh, to try to do the same types of things, uh, to, to, to have the same wisdom to know what holiness might look like for us, to, to live into this deepest identity that God has given us through Jesus. Um, and in this section, you know, in, in, the, in the letter to the Corinthians, um, Paul addresses a bunch of different issues, and we're kind of moving into a new issue or section of the letter today. Okay, so we're going to be spending the next few weeks kind of unpacking this, um, but let me open up to you by reading uh, chapter 8. It's only 13 verses, and we'll kind of see what this next thing that Paul's talking about is here, okay? So let's get into it. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13. Now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live." But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God, and we are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Oh, hang on, clicker's not going, guys. Here we go. Okay. Uh, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So, as you can tell, as we read this passage, and it's kind of of a famous one. There's a decent chance um, that you might be familiar with it. There's some issue in Corinth that has to do with eating meat that's been singled out for dedication to idol worship. But... Paul thinks, Paul sees there's, some, there's, a, there, there's a deeper issue behind this. And I think that's really important for us to understand what's going on there, okay? And, and, and really that deeper issue is this. I think we can frame the deeper issue as that when being right makes you wrong, okay? When being right makes you wrong, I think, is the deeper issue for Paul. And that's why in the passage that has to do with idol worship, Paul talks quite a bit about knowledge and love, okay? He talks a lot about these different things that you can be right with one of these things and then wrong with the other, okay? And that's really what I want us to talk about today, all right? The Corinthians are obsessed with their rights and their knowledge and sort of getting what they deserve from them, all right? That seems to be the major issue here. And if you've been with us for the rest of this series, you've seen these kinds of ideas kind of pop up, and they will continue to pop up uh, over and over again, okay? And this is a really, I think, great spot where Paul really unpacks the issue at its heart, okay? Now, um, 
in order to really understand this well, I do think we under, need to understand the context. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about idol worship because I'm going to guess that idol worship in the ancient world is something you're probably not familiar with. There's really no reason for us to be, all right? But I do think as you study it, you start to understand why this is such an issue, okay? So idol worship. Let's talk a little bit about idol worship. Gods and goddesses in the ancient world. Now, there were many, many, many gods and goddesses in the ancient world, and they were sort of attached to all different aspects of life. You had gods and goddesses for farming, for health, for fertility, basically whatever you can think of, there was probably a god that was associated with it. And uh, life was kind of directed around worship of the gods, and it's something that you did really without thinking about it, okay? If you're traveling somewhere and you show up late because all the roads were blocked, you might wonder if some god somewhere had it out for you. Or maybe someone had put a curse on you, and that's why you showed up late. That's why all the roads that you were trying to travel on were blocked. Okay? Maybe there's a lightning ship, or a lightning strike next to the ship that you're traveling on, and you think, oh man, I forgot to offer Poseidon a sacrifice before we left. That's probably a warning from him to make sure I do it next time. Right? Maybe you're, uh, there's a festival tomorrow at some temple, and you think, we better get there, or else everyone, all of our neighbors are going to notice that we didn't go, and they're going to think we're super weird. Everyone's going everyone's to notice. Okay? This is just very normal, right? Um, let me give you an example, and let's kind of unpack this a little bit. It's an, actually an invitation that um, archaeologists have found to a birthday party for a one-year-old girl. Okay? It reads this. Sheremon, who's the parent, requests your company at the table of the Lord Serapis at the Serapeum tomorrow, the 15th, at 9 o'clock. All right, so Serapis is an Egyptian god. It's kind of spread throughout the Greco-Roman world by a Greek king several centuries before Paul and the early church and had a whole backstory. Um, is known, he was known as the lover of the Egyptian goddess Isis, and he had these powers to manipulate soil and, and stuff like this. And the Serapeum is the temple dedicated to Serapis in Corinth, right? So here what we have is a birthday party, and it's not going to take place at the play place in McDonald's, right? But it's going to take place at the temple courtyard. And that's because in the ancient world, McDonald's is in a lot of ways the temple of Serapis. That's really how the ancient world worked, okay? Meat sacrifice to idols was sort of done for very regular meals, it was very normal. All the festivals that would take place, and there were very many of them, and private celebrations, things like birthdays, were often taking place in temples. And so what you do is you would, the family would bring some meat to be sacrificed, and maybe they'd bring some friends with them. And then actually other people who were hanging out in the temple courtyard could eat some of the leftover meat. And then, assuming all the meat was not eaten, the temple would take it and sell it in the courtyard, in the marketplace, a little bit later on. So, there's a very decent chance that a large portion, if not most of the meat sold in the marketplace, in a place like Corinth, the place you would go to get your food on a regular basis, and eventually makes it into your belly, was previously sacrificed in some temple to an idol. And the Gentile, these non-Jewish Corinthians, um, who are a part of the Corinthian church, they had grown up doing this their whole lives, right? They had grown up eating meat in the marketplace and in temple courtyards um, that had been sacrificed to idols basically as long as they could remember. 
And, and so the, the, the sacrifice is a big part of this here, right? De- being, it being dedicated to some God. But there's actually a very social angle to all of this as well, right? Think about the social factors of a birthday party, right? You connect with the parents of the kids in your school. It's a major gathering spot. You don't want to not go to this kind of stuff because people notice. You're missing out on chances to connect with people in your community, right? You would be missing out on that kind of stuff. On Tuesday night, we're, we're having a thing in our neighborhood called Night to Unite. Is this something you guys do in your, in your neighborhoods? Right? It's kind of, a, kind of a big thing where people get together, right? Someone rents a, um, you know, a street out, and they you know, cook some food. Cops come by um, and, and talk to people. Kids are playing. It's just a really fun event. Um, it's the type of uh, community event that we really enjoy doing. Okay, imagine that you go to this. And your neighbor's like, hey, welcome to Night Tonight. We got some brats and hamburgers over there. They've all been dedicated to Serapis, so you're good to go uh, there. And, and head on over there, and then, you know, we got the beer uh, and then drinks beyond that, and then you can just hang out with everybody, right? Well, that'd be kind of weird, right? But this is kind of how the ancient world worked, right? This is a very normal thing. And as a Christian, it, crea- it creates kind of an issue, because you're supposed to engage in worship of God and God alone, and that means that now you ha- you're, you've been discouraged from eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. But that's a challenge because so much of the meat and so much of the, uh, the food that's being eaten is taking place kind of around this, uh, around this worship of idols, right? If you go and eat that food and people see it, you're signaling to everybody else that you're totally fine worshiping Serapis or whatever god or goddess that had been uh, that had been dedicated to, right? And so this is a very uncomfortable thing for people, right? To know that not only are they not able to take part in the social events that they normally did, but they're going to start to be seen as very weird for not going to these events. Okay, people are going to start to notice if you're not showing up at these kinds of events. Um, they're going to start to ask you about it, and you're going to tell them, "I actually don't think these gods, you know, I think there's a there's a god that's above all of." them, and they're going to go off and do the gossip thing, and people are going to start to think everyone who goes to this church is super weird, right? So this is the pressure that's on the Corinthian church, and it's a real challenge for all of them. Now, the Corinthians seem to think they found a kind of loophole uh, to all of this, okay? And that's what Paul is responding to, and he's letting them know, hey, you're right, but you're also wrong in this, right? Now, the loophole that they found is this. We know that the gods and goddesses, they have no real power in the world, okay? You know, other people might think they do, but if we eat this meat that's been sacrificed to them, we know that there's nothing going on there. These gods have no power in the world. So who cares if we go? We know that nothing is going on here. That's the knowledge that we have. I'm just hanging out with my friends. And it leads them to feel like they kind of have the right to do whatever they want because they have this knowledge, okay? Now, we might not use that language, but I think we do these kinds of rationalizations in our head all the time, right? You're driving on the highway, and you know that if you go, you go above the speed limit but not quite 10 miles over the speed limit, you're, you're probably not going to get pulled over, right? So you go 9 miles per hour over the speed limit. You start to think, I have a right <laughs> almost to go 9 miles per hour over the speed limit, and so that's what you do. I think it's a little bit similar to that, right? Now, Paul, disagree, you know, he agrees with them in principle, right? He says this knowledge 
isn't wrong. And he actually agrees with the premise of this assertion. He's, yet he is saying, yes, these idols do not have the power that they claim to have. They do not rule the world. And, and they are not, you're not sacrificing and this meat to anything that has any real presence. But he does want to persuade them not to go to these, uh, um, these sorts of festivals, okay? And, and here's his point. Here's the deeper thing that's going on for Paul behind this. Just because we have knowledge of something doesn't mean we know what to do with that in a wise and really Christ-honoring way. Okay, those are two separate things. The sign of a mature Christian isn't that they know a bunch of stuff, Paul is saying. It's that they're like Jesus. It's that they know what to do with what they have. They know what to do with, what they, with the knowledge that they have in a Christ-like way, in a Jesus-like way. Okay? And so he starts off the passage by saying this. Okay? Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Okay? So what he's doing is he's saying, you have a certain knowledge, but I want to push you towards a deeper kind of knowledge, okay? And that deeper kind of knowledge for Paul, I think, is love. This is what he says in verse 1. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up, okay? It's kind of like a modern idiom, right? You know, someone who has a big head is someone we think of as very prideful. They've been puffed up, right? Paul is saying that having a bunch of knowledge oftentimes just gives you a big head, That's really all that's going on. And so as you become the person who gains all this knowledge, you start to think more about yourself than the normies around you, right? Be honest. When you learn a piece of information, you start to to really be excited about that. You start to sometimes think, you know, it puts you a little bit higher on some social ladder than the people around you who maybe don't know that, right? Right? Um, that's half the reason we try to gain knowledge, I think, sometimes, is so we can look and feel like the smartest person in the room, right? Or maybe that's not something you do, but you know people like that, right? They like to know things, and they like to let everyone else know that they know things, because it makes them feel good about themselves in some way, right? Now, knowledge is good. We need knowledge, okay? But knowledge doesn't make us any more holy or Christ-like or mature, It doesn't get us any closer to God. And actually, in fact, knowledge not only doesn't necessarily move us toward maturity or Christ-likeness on its own, actually sometimes it can work backwards. There's a a really great little booklet. It's written by a German theologian named Helmut Thelic. Okay, a great German name, right? And he wrote it for seminarians a long time ago. It's a booklet called A Little Exercise for Young Theologians. And he starts out early in the book by telling a hypothetical story about a young man, um, a Christian who's part of his church. He's very devoted to his church. He humbly serves all the time. He's loved by everyone. He's gentle. He's kind. He's committed. He's kind of a super volunteer. Everyone loves this guy. And they think, you know what would be great is if we... Let, have this guy become a pastor at our church down the road. He's perfect for it. And so what they do is they decide to send him to seminary. And he, he goes off for a, for a year, and he comes back the next summer, and everyone realizes he is not the same guy he was when he left, right? In Bible studies, he just sits there wearing a frown on his face uh, as people talk, about, talk through their uninformed opinions of the text, Right? And you can just tell he's displeased with everything he's hearing from the people around him. 
And someone asks some question, some kind of innocent, honest question about the text, and he's there to pounce on them, to, to show off his brilliant knowledge, to win an argument with them that they didn't realize that they were stepping into an argument at all, right? And maybe after the Bible study, he takes the leader aside, and he kind of walks them through all the technical words that they should have been using and all of the different studies and interpretation and scripture passages which maybe contradict what they said that they should know about, right, if they are going to be a, a, a teacher of the Bible. And basically, it gets to the point where everybody is afraid to talk with this guy about faith because they're afraid they're, he's going to make them feel stupid and they just kind of don't like him anymore. They wish he would have just stayed in seminary and never come back, Right? Now, most of you won't go to seminary. I understand that. But I think this, we're all in danger of this happening to us in some way, even in smaller ways, right? There's lots of content out there that you can use to educate yourself around faith, right? You, there's podcasts. There's, there's books that we can read. Um, you can watch some Bible project videos. You can follow some theologian on social media or something, right? And it's easy, it's never been easier to learn things about the Bible or about faith or about God or really about anything, right? And it, you can take that kind of stuff and you can come back to your church settings and you can start to think, um, you can start to realize no one else knows this stuff. And it can start to make you, you know, wait to pounce with a well actually when someone brings something up, right? And set everyone straight, right? It starts to make you feel like you're smarter than everyone else, that you're puffed up, that you're on a higher plane than the people around you. Now, Helmut Delek says that what's going on here is that there's a kind of hiatus between the arena of a young theologian's actual spiritual growth and what he or she already knows intellectually about this arena, Okay? In other words, there's a natural growth that seems to occur between when you learn some idea and when you learn how to use what you've learned with the people around you and to handle it with, a, with maturity, really to handle it with love. Right? And he, he says it's like a person who has been given clothes that are too big for them and they need some time to grow into them still. Right? And in the meantime, they kind of look ridiculous because they are ridiculous, right? As there's this gap between how much they've actually grown in the clothes that they're wearing. But the problem is, is that they think that, they're, they think that because they're wearing clothes made for adults, that they are adults, right? And they start to think, I've spent some time studying some topic and now I have the right to some respect, Okay? And what they're failing to realize is that just having knowledge doesn't mean you automatically should be listened to or that you automatically should be able to lead well. Okay? Having knowledge is not the qualifier for that. It's love. It's Christ-like love. And the problem is that people going through this, what, what Thalek calls a sort of theological puberty, they get to a point where they start to despise those who have just a simple trust in Jesus, right? And to, and to consider them as more important than them. Consider how they're affecting the people around them. And, and he says it becomes a sort of spiritual disease, one that turns you off of love for others and inwards in, towards love of self. Now, love is more important than knowledge because it introduces us to a whole different type of knowledge, okay? The knowledge of how our knowledge affects those around us and how it builds up the church, 
that we're a part of, that any knowledge is supposed to serve. And Paul is trying to urge these Corinthians to embrace that knowledge, to see that knowledge as more important than any other knowledge that they could gain about idols and idol worship or anything else, right? And so that's what he's talking about in verses 7 to 13. Let me reread those. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Be careful, however, that, um, that the exercise of your rights has not become a stumbling block to the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. Okay? He's saying that the real issue here is not that you have the knowledge to get to go do whatever you want, to find the loopholes that you want to have so that you can still go to eat all the food that you want to, you can take part in any social event that you still want to. The real issue, because you're missing out on the fun that you want to have, essentially. He says the real issue is that some brother or sister sees one of these knowledgeable people going out and doing it, and it as soon as that happens, it no longer affects just the person with the knowledge, okay? It becomes about everybody else at that point. And because they don't have your knowledge, they might start to think that they can also have their cake and eat it too, that they can worship and serve idols, and they can worship and serve Jesus at the same time. And they can, they can just act like all their neighbors around them, all their pagan neighbors around them in any other way as well, that there's no consequence for them to do that. Okay? And now because of your knowledge, someone else's fake is, faith has been entirely ruined. It's been entirely wrecked. And that's the real issue here. And so this whole scenario, it really sets out a dilemma to people who learn something, who have some knowledge. It's, it's the question of what matters to you more. Okay? Is what matters to you more is just your rights, just being able to do whatever you want, to, to get to, uh, to use the knowledge that you have to benefit you in some way? Or is it to use that knowledge to build up the church around you, to benefit the people around you so that they are going to grow as well? Okay? And I think when we really ask ourselves that question, your true answer is going to be revealing for the state of maturity and the Christ-likeness and love that you have, which is a far better indicator of how close you are to God than simply how much you might know about something. Now, this deeper knowledge of love, it's founded not on facts. It's not founded on things that we might learn by reading something in a book. But really, and this is, I think, what makes it unique and special, is that it's founded on being known by God and knowing God. This is what Paul says in verse 3 about this deeper kind of knowing. Whoever loves is known by God. This is what Paul is pointing us readers to. Knowledge is good, but it doesn't guarantee that we know God, only that we know about God. Okay? Let me explain to you that what, what, what the difference between those things are. Okay? Think about someone who is going to school, they're gaining their PhD in, in um, geology, right? And they start to know all about all kinds of rocks, right? And they, they, they have read a book about the Alps, and they know all the different types of rocks that make up 
the Alps. They've seen some pictures of them. They have understood how over the years these rocks came to be formed. And, and, and they, 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 they have all the, th- you know, all the theories that you would need to know about how the Alps came to be, right? Okay, that's someone who knows about the Alps and knows about the rocks that make up the Alps. Think about that kind of knowledge versus the knowledge of someone who has traveled to the Alps, okay? Someone who has hiked the Alps, who, has, who not, not only knows about the rocks, but knows the rocks. They've seen the rocks. They've run their hands along them. They've seen them with their own eyes. They've had their breath taken away by what these rocks have built as they stand on top of it. Okay? This is the type of knowing that Paul is talking about as the most fundamental and important knowledge for us as Christians. There's a small grammatical difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Okay? But it's hard to understate the significance of the gap between those. Returning to that book I was talking about earlier by Helmut Thelek, he says something in there that I think is incredibly profound, and it connects to this point that Paul is trying to make. And he goes back to the story of the serpent in the garden, kind of telling the, the story of Adam and Eve and how the serpent comes and deceives them and tempts them, and, which ends up introducing sin into the world. The serpent questions Eve about God's direction to them. The serpent asks Eve, um, did God really say that you shouldn't do this? And, and Helmut Delic notes that this is the first time in all of Scripture that um, someone speaks no longer with God, but about God. It's the first time you see that in Scripture, where God starts to be referred to in the third person. He says, this fact ought to make us think. What's happened in that moment is now instead of going directly to God and knowing him, humans have started to put the priority on knowing about God. And what that does is it removes us from relationship with him. And that's where distrust starts to form. That's where our opinions start to become more important as we try to decide uh, what to do with these facts. Basically, sin enters the story when people stop knowing God and settle for knowing about God and guessing what he means or what he's like. That's the big shift in the story. And I think it's really profound when we think about that, okay? I think this is the kind of knowledge or knowing that the Corinthians are going after. And Paul is pushing them to go back to the type of knowing that humans had in the garden before sin entered the world. It's only by knowing and being known by God that love can start to flourish, okay? Think about it. Love can't develop around facts, Love can't develop around guessing what God does or doesn't like. Okay, love can only develop around relationship. Okay? You think about this. You, you can know someone who disagrees with you on, on political questions, let's say, right? These really important things that, 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 that you believe about the world. But you can know someone. You can have a deep relationship with someone. Maybe they're in your family, right? And, and, and even though you disagree with them on these issues, you still have a deep love for them okay, because of relationship. You can't develop that kind of relationship if you're talking with someone on Twitter, you've never met them, you have no relationship with them, and they hold the same exact views as that person in your family. And that's because love can't develop without relationship. 
That's the idea here, okay? And I think it's even more so true uh, when we talk about how this relationship with God is with the relationship with the source of all love, okay? When the love that develops in us because we, are, we know and are known by God starts to sprout, that starts to allow us to have this type of love for our siblings that Paul's talking about. And I really think that's the fundamental point of this passage, way more so than idols and idol worship or any of that stuff. When we know God, not like someone who has studied a bunch of books about rocks, but like someone who has traveled across the Alps, we are starting to come to the understanding of what Paul is talking about here. And hopefully, we will start to see the fruit of that different kind of knowing in our communities. And now clearly, the Corinthians did not know God like this. In Paul's view, their knowledge and their acting on their rights would destroy the faith of their brothers and sisters, and they had no concern for it. It's because they were seeking out a different kind of knowledge than the one that we should be seeking out if we are people who follow after Jesus. Now, I get it. Love takes work, whether it's love of God or love of other people. It's hard to do sometimes. It's tough to fit in our schedules, okay? We're busy. And I actually think sometimes it can be kind of scary to do, to engage with the living God rather than to build one out of, our, uh, out of facts that we might have or opinions that we might have about him. Okay? Because uh, we might be challenged by an actual living God who is not just built out of our perceptions of him, but one that we're in relationship with. Relationships can be tough. They can challenge us. They stretch us. They're not easy all the time. Okay? Just like it's scarier and more dangerous to hike the Alps rather than read about them in a comfortable office somewhere. God might challenge us as we get to know him. He might challenge us to go to deeper depths of love than we've ever thought possible, okay? But getting over that fear, I think, and engaging with that, being willing to be challenged, is really what holiness is all about, really what this whole letter to the Corinthians is all about. And it's also what we have seen in Jesus. When we come here and we worship Jesus, Instead of worshiping these petty idols, these petty uh, pagan gods and goddesses that the Corinthians were, were, were pulled at to believe around them, when we worship Jesus, what we see is a God who does exactly what he's asking us to do, who sees love as the deepest kind of knowledge. As we enter into a time of worship and communion here to close, I want to draw our hearts to that by reading a passage from Philippians 2, 5 to 11 that shows us how Jesus does this, and this is why he is more worthy of worship than any other god or goddess. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we take communion, something we do every Sunday here at Res City, what we're doing is we're, we're eating food and acknowledging that Jesus is worthy of worship above everything else. We're drawing our hearts to why he is worthy of worship above everything else. 
It's because he didn't use any knowledge, anything that he had for his own advantage, but instead for the good of us in love because he had the deeper knowledge that love is the most important thing. So when we take communion, we are acknowledging and worshiping him for that, and we're asking him to make us people like that as well. So as we enter into a time of worship and communion here, um, keep that on your mind. Maybe you can uh, spend some time in, in prayer asking God, is there anywhere where you're calling me to embrace this deeper knowledge of love in some way, to be like your son Jesus, to worship him by living like him in my own life? And perhaps the Spirit will bring something to your mind as you do that. If not, though, it's okay to just sit in thankfulness for Jesus as well. Let me pray for us, and then we'll enter into that time. Lord, we thank you that unlike anything else we could worship, you are a God who uh, does not see everything that we do as just something that can be given to you for your own advantage, but instead it works the opposite way. You give yourself up for us so that we may have every advantage, Lord. You show us what kind of love you desire from us, Lord. You model it. You do not ask us to do anything that you have not done yourself, Lord. I pray that we would be people who would um, have all kinds of knowledge, Lord, but we would be uh, mature enough in your son Jesus to use it in love so that we may build up um, uh, the, the communities around us, the people around us, instead of just trying to build up ourselves, God. We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.